If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 14. John 14, as we continue to look at the upper room discourse in John's gospel, and we'll be in verses 1 to 14 today. We are in this season of Advent, and Advent is a season for waiting, which is probably why we call it a season and not a celebration, because waiting is not something that we really like to do. We don't like to be put on hold on the phone. We don't like to stand in line or have a package delayed. We don't like to get stuck in traffic. Uh, In the coming weeks, kids will say something like, I can't wait for Christmas. And teenagers will say, I can't wait for Christmas break. (laughs) And yet, as much as we don't like it, there is also this sense in which we're always waiting for something. Even as we think about this season before we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, we realize that we're called to remember the way that people waited for the first arrival of Jesus as we remember that we also right now are waiting for his return. And while the fact that Jesus has come as the promised Messiah and Savior changes everything, we are still a people who are called to wait for him. We are in a sense homesick for a home and a kingdom that we have yet to visit, and we can hardly wait to get there. But as we wait, we are called to trust, to have faith, to to believe in God and in the promises that he has made. That call to believe, we know, is at the heart of John's gospel. He has written these things so that we would believe in Jesus and find life in his name. The call to believe is not only key to to John's gospel, it's key to this passage, and it's a command that's given to those who were troubled. Belief, we find here, is actually the cure for our troubled hearts. We see this in the very first verse of the passage, which is what we'll take basically as our main idea for today, which is this, don't let your hearts be troubled, but believe. Don't let your hearts be troubled. But believe, and if you don't want that but in there, you can just say, don't let your hearts be troubled, believe. From this first verse and from this big idea, I think we're going to see in the rest of this passage who and what we are to believe in and how that belief can bring comfort to our troubled hearts. So don't let your hearts be troubled, believe. I want to read John 14, 1 to 14. Remember, we're at the very beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, and after calling, calling his followers to, to this new commandment of loving one another and telling Peter that he is going to deny him very soon, three times, we read these words from Jesus in John 14, 1 to 14. I'd invite you to look, and as I read, just take note of how often this theme of believe shows up just in these 14 Verses. John 14, beginning in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still, don't, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe. If that word troubled seems familiar to you, it's because John has told us in chapters 11, 12, and 13 that Jesus' heart was troubled. He was troubled by the death of his friend Lazarus. He was troubled by the approach of his coming hour of death and glorification, and he was troubled by the betrayal of his friend Judas. Given that context, we might look at this scene in the upper room and conclude that Jesus is the one who needs comforting and that the disciples should, in fact, be ministering to him. And yet he looks to them in verse 1 of chapter 14 and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. So what were they troubled about? What were the disciples concerned about? Well, I think we've made it clear that they are most troubled at the thought that their friend and their leader is going to leave them, and that he's made it clear that they are not allowed to follow him, at least not for now. He says in verse 18 of this chapter that he will not leave them as orphans, which again helps us to see them as as children that are distressed at the thought that the one who cared for and protected and taught them was leaving. Not only is the thought of Jesus leaving troubling to them, but they've also become very aware of their own weaknesses, the weaknesses among them and in them. One of them is going to betray Jesus, they've been told. Peter is going to deny that he even knows Jesus in less than 24 hours. So they're concerned about Jesus leaving. They're concerned about their own weakness. And certainly this situation was unique to the 12 disciples gathered in this upper room. They were troubled by the events surrounding the darkest day in history. But can't we relate to them in their troubled hearts? We too can find our hearts troubled by the apparent absence of Jesus in our world and in our lives, by by moments when it seems like he is leaving us all by ourselves, or moments when it feels like he has stepped away from the steering wheel of history and it's just careening wherever it might go. We can also be troubled by our own weakness, can't we? By those moments when we see the betrayal and the denial in our own hearts, Or we could be discouraged by the failures and the shortcomings of those around us who claim to follow Christ. The absence of Jesus and the presence of sin are troubling to us. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy for our troubled hearts? Verse 1 is very clear. We are called to believe, to, to have faith, to trust. Now, of course, What's most important about belief and faith and trust is who or what our trust is in. I'm not sure if they still do this, but 
During the Christmas season, Macy's always used to put in big red letters on the side of their downtown New York store the word, believe. But what was Macy's calling us to believe in? Santa Claus? Christmas spirit? Capitalism? <laughs> well, Jesus is not ambiguous about what, we're to, what we are to believe in, is he? He says, believe in God. Believe also in me. We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in him. We are to believe in God. We are to believe in Jesus. Now, there could be a sense in which Jesus is acknowledging their, their faith in God the Father, but now he's calling them to trust in him with that same sense of of trust, or it could be that these are just two parallel commands, believe in God, believe in me. Either way, there's some deep Christology going on here, meaning that we're seeing that Jesus is making himself equal to the Father. To trust in God is to trust in Jesus. We trust them both, but also to trust one is to trust the other. But just what are we supposed to trust about God? Maybe you can think about your own area of expertise, whether it's in the medical field or in finance or in computers or in education or in something else. And as you speak to a patient or a, a client or a friend or just a, or a child, you, you tell them what to do to fix a particular problem or to get a certain result, and they trust you. Well, why? Why do they trust you? Because you have some form of expertise, you have some sort of knowledge or skill or experience or degree hanging on the wall that allows them to trust you and to follow what you say. So why should we trust God? Why should we trust Jesus? Well, remember the situation of the passage. We are like the disciples and we are troubled by the apparent absence of Jesus and by the darkness of our own hearts. The disciples did not understand what was going on in this moment. They were confused by the plan of the Father and of the Son that would lead to the cross, just as sometimes we are confused by God and by his ways. But into our uncertainty, we are to trust. We are to believe. We are to believe in who God is and who Jesus is. Now, we could say a lot about who God is and who Jesus is. We could talk about the love of God or the sovereignty of God or the wisdom of God. And believing these things will bring comfort to us in the midst of trouble. But Jesus gives us some very specific things. He gives it to the disciples and to us. In fact, he's going to call us to believe and to trust that, that his leaving is for our good as his followers. I want to point out two big overarching things that Jesus is calling us to believe in that help our troubled hearts, okay? Verses 1 through 7, we see, first of all, that we are to believe that the departure of Jesus is for our future blessing. We are to believe that the departure of Jesus is for our future blessing. Let's go back to the illustration of last week when a child, is, a, a parent is, is leaving a, a child to, to go somewhere and the child is distressed at this parent's departure and they want to come along and the parent says, where I am going, you cannot come. I actually, Andrea said that to one of our kids this week and it made me smile. Where I am going, you cannot come. And the child, if they hear those words, is likely going to protest, saying that they want to come along. But the parent could then further say something to the effect of, it's actually for your benefit that I'm going away. 
Now, maybe that's because the parent's going to work and they're going to provide uh, for the child, or maybe the, he or she's going to the, to the store to buy food for the child. Uh, whatever it is, while the child cannot come, the parent can communicate that his or her leaving is actually for their good. And here, we are to trust that the departure of Jesus is for our good. It's for our future blessing. What is the future blessing? Two things that we can point out. First, it's the provision of a place. The provision of a place. Jesus' departure provides a place. It's a place where we can always be with the Father and the Son. A place where there is no more leaving. As Jesus comforts us and his disciples, he reminds us of our future hope, of the kingdom that he will take us to, that is a place free from trouble because of the nearness of the Father and because of the death of death and the death of all separation. The image he gives us is of a home with many rooms. A home with many rooms. It's, it's a place where everyone can be together, near to the Father and to the Son. I think that there could be a, a cultural element to this promise that, that might be tied up in marriage customs of the day. A bridegroom would often, uh, when he was engaged, would prepare a place for he and his future bride that would be sort of attached to the same building or property or just on the family's estate that, that once this uh, bride and groom were married, they would then move into this new place that had been prepared in the engagement period. Uh, those of you from the Philippines, I've heard about this custom of an ancestral home. And an ancestral home often is, is added on to as the years go by and as different people inherit that home. Or you might just think about other cultures. Our culture is, is very centered on having your own place. But many other cultures, multiple generations live together. And here, Jesus, the, the bridegroom, and maybe we could even say the carpenter, tells us that he's going away and he's going to make a room for us, attached, as it were, to the Father's house. So furthermore, he says that, that in this house there are many rooms, meaning that there's enough room for everyone to be together. Our extended family on, on Andrea's side is always trying to find a home that we can rent, that we can all fit in, and it's gotten harder and harder as our families have grown. But that's not a problem in the Father's house. There is room for all of God's children. And it's actually, it's the place that our hearts are most longing for. In fact, it's, it's the fulfillment of all of the, the homes that we have ever experienced or sought after here on earth. Bill Mills, the founder of Word Partners, wrote this. Home is always the place where we are most comfortable. Everything there belongs to us. It's all in the right place. Even on our most wonderful travel holidays, with all of the joys along the way, the place where our hearts most long to be is home. Our Father is preparing a home for us in heaven. Our hearts will finally be, finally be settled in that place. Everything will be just right. And the Lord we have loved will be there with us. It's a beautiful picture. A home, the Father's house, with a spot prepared just for us and plenty of room for all of God's children. So not only does Jesus' departure provide a place where we can always be with the Father and the Son, but notice this, that his departure also provides the pathway to that place. The pathway to that place. 
In fact, he says that he is going to return and take us to the Father's house. An interesting thing to note about this section of the Upper Room Discourse is that beginning with Peter's protest at the end of chapter 13, this, uh, this part of the discourse is punctuated by questions and confusion on the part of the disciples. And so Peter has talked, and now it's Thomas's turn to speak. When Jesus says that he's preparing this place and that they know how to get there, Thomas interrupts and he says, but we don't even know where you're going, Jesus. How can we know how to get there? He's got kind of a decent point. I mean, if I say to you, let's meet for dinner at 6 p.m., but I don't tell you where we're going, then we're probably not going to be having dinner together. Why? Well, because you don't know where I'm going or how to get there. And yet Thomas is also a little off because he does know where Jesus is going. He's very clear that he is going back to the Father. On this idea of home, Frederick Buechner says of our longing for home that it's in that longing we usually find our minds wandering not simply to a place but to a person because a house is just four, wall, four walls. Home is found in the people who live in those walls. And so Jesus does, doesn't actually need to be very specific about where he is going. He's going to the Father. And the child of God simply longs to be with the Father. That is home, wherever it might be. As far as how to get there, there's also nothing to worry about because Jesus says that he is the way to this place. And hearing that, the, the image that came to my mind is from John 1, where Jesus says to Nathaniel, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Which in that, Jesus is likely referencing another picture, which is the ladder that Jacob saw in the book of Genesis. This spot that he called the gate of heaven. It was the image of a stairway leading into heaven. And Jesus says in John 1 that he is that stairway. And here he says that he is the way. He just told them that, that they knew the way, but Thomas says they most certainly do not know the way. And so Jesus effectively says, Thomas, do you know me? Because if you know me, you know the way. Because I am the way. Go back to my dinner invitation. And this time I say to you, let's go to dinner. I'll pick you up at 6 p.m. And suddenly your lack of knowledge about where we're going doesn't really matter. Why? Because I am your way to the place. I know where we're going and I know how to get there. I told Lena that illustration and she said, but I still want to know where we're going. <laughs> and if, if we say that, then I could say to you, just trust me. I'll get you there. Wherever it is, I'm the way, and I'll get you there. We know that we are going to the Father's house, and Jesus is the way to get there, so we don't need to worry. Even when our hearts are troubled in this place, we know that we have a home that is being prepared for us, and that Jesus is going to get us there. No problem. But Jesus doesn't only say that he is the way. What else does he say? He says he's the truth and he's the life. These, in some ways, based on, on Philip's question, uh, or on Thomas's question, they seem to be informing the idea that Jesus is the way. As the perfect revelation of God, he is the, the truth that shows us how we might return to the Father. He goes on to, to make this clear in verse 7, reminding us that to see him is to see the Father. 
He is also not just the truth, he is the life. He is the, the source of all life. Remember, he has life in himself. And he, he is the, the resurrection life. So therefore, he's the only one who can provide a path to the place of eternal life. Therefore, as the word of God made flesh who reveals the truth of God perfectly, and as the one who has life in himself, he's not simply a way to the Father. He's the only way to the Father because there is no one else like him. There was no one else that reveals truth in the way he does. There is no one else who has life in the way that he does. No one can come to the Father unless they come through him. If you're here and you're imagining that there is some other source of truth or life, some other way to get to the home that our hearts have been made for, know this, Jesus is the only way. As we celebrate his incarnation, we are rejoicing that he has come to make a way through his death and his resurrection, and he will come again to take us back to himself. And because he has provided a place for us as well as the pathway to, to that place, our hearts don't need to be troubled if we believe in him. This verse speaks of the exclusivity of Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. Some people struggle with that idea. But isn't there a beautiful thing here that, that Christ has made a way at all? He didn't have to make a way at all. And yet in his grace and his love, he has come and he has revealed the way back to the Father. So Jesus' departure is for our future blessing because through it, he will provide a place for us to always be with him and with the Father. And because through his departure, he provides the pathway to that place. So when our hearts are troubled, we are to trust that we have a home that we are heading to and that Jesus is going to get us there. Jesus' words spark a statement from Philip in verse 8. And the response of Jesus reveals that when our hearts are troubled, we must believe something else. And that's this, believe that the departure of Jesus is for our present power. We've talked about future blessing. Let's also believe that the departure of Jesus is for our present power. As I was teaching Elaine to drive, there came this point where I realized that she didn't have all of the knowledge and all of the experience that I wanted her to have. But right alongside that realization was the realization that she was not going to get that knowledge and experience unless I got out of the car. <laughs> she needed me to leave so that she could grow in her skills as a driver and make independent decisions and even make some hopefully small mistakes along the way. The statement of Philip reveals that while the disciples believe in and know Jesus, there is room to grow. And this growth will come, Jesus says, in part because he is going to leave. So at, that, at the thought of Jesus leaving and, and of those words in verse 7 regarding seeing the Father, what does Philip request? He asks to see the Father, stating that if they could just see the Father, that, that will be enough for them to, to truly believe or to be comforted even. He asks for the thing that people have asked for throughout the centuries, a vision of God. Even to this day, people, maybe you, maybe your friends or your coworkers, they say that if God would just show up, if he would just show up in some sort of clear way, then I would believe. 
To which Jesus says, you still don't know me? You still don't understand what I've come to do? The questions that Jesus asks in response to Philip's request are not meant to be answered. They simply are to show how confused Philip and the others were about what had been going on for the past three years. And if we think that that we would never have made that request or we would have never misunderstood what God was doing in Christ, then we fail to understand the mystery of everything that was going on here. Because what Jesus says moves beyond the realm of what we are fully able to comprehend. Simply stated, Jesus says regarding how the Father and the Son work together, he says, if you've seen me, you've, you've seen the Father because the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And all of this, verse 11 says, is what we are to believe. Believe that the departure of Jesus for our present power, and, and in that we are to believe that God has worked through Jesus. So this is kind of a sub-point underneath that bigger one. Believe that the departure of Jesus for, is for our present power, and part of that is to believe that God has worked through Jesus. We are to believe that Jesus is the full revelation of the Father spoken of in John's Gospel. And not simply in a visible sense, because what is real and true and deep of deep significance has very little to do with what we see with our physical eyes. Rather, the Father is revealed through the words and the works of Jesus. The words and the works that John has recorded here in his gospel, these allow us to see the Father. Remember, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John has no time for us when we say that we would believe if we, if we could just see Jesus in the flesh. Because he's recorded these words and the works of Jesus for us. And these words reveal who the Father and the Son are. John alone records that story about Thomas after the resurrection, not believing that Jesus is alive until he sees him with his eyes. Driving home the need to believe instead with our eyes, with our ears and our hearts, even if our eyes never see. On this thought, one commentator writes this, the phrase seeing is believing is wholly inappropriate when it comes to God. For if a person believes in the words of Jesus, they will see the Father. So instead of seeing is believing, we should say hearing and believing is seeing. As, as we believe who Jesus is and believe in what he has done, especially through the cross, our hearts are no longer troubled. We begin to believe that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world and that in seeing him through the words of the Scriptures, we can have confidence that we are forgiven of our sins, we are adopted into the family of God. When we believe that God has worked through Jesus, we find comfort through the hope of the gospel. And then in verse 12, there's a shift away from what we believe about what God has done in Christ to what we are to do. Jesus is no longer speaking about how the Father, about how he and the Father have worked, but how the disciples, how we, the followers of Jesus, are to work. Because the departure of Jesus means that he is no longer going to work in the same way, namely on, here on earth in a physical body. But now he sends all of his disciples to work and to do exactly as he has done. We are now, we are now invited to reveal the Father and the Son, as we do the works of God. We are to believe that God can do in us what he has done through Jesus, that he can work through us for his glory. 
So we not only believe that God has worked through Jesus, but now we believe that God and Jesus can work through us. We believe that God and Jesus can work through us. Verse 12 says that as we believe in Jesus, we will do the works that he has done. And not just any works, greater works. Greater works? What are these greater works? We might think of them in terms of healings and resurrections like we've witnessed in this gospel. But John has already been hinting at the, the true work of God. I think John 6 28 to 29 is probably the clearest indicator of what the greater works are. It says there, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What's the greater work? It's belief. The greater work is calling others who have not seen Jesus, but who hear his words to believe in him. The greater work is announcing that Jesus is the way and the truth of the life, and then seeing people actually believe that. Because in him, we find a deeper healing. We find a healing for our souls. In him, we find true resurrection, an eternal resurrection. Jesus says that this greater work is possible. Why? Because he's going to the Father. He has to leave so that we can do this greater work. And as he goes to the Father, he opens up the way for us to ask he and the Father to do this powerful work in and through us. We often wonder what Jesus means when he says there, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, thinking that this makes him into some sort of genie who grants our every wish. But the context here, remember, is in ministering to others and calling them to belief in him. So he seems to be saying, whatever you ask in regard to, to calling others to faith, this greater work of calling people to believe, this I will do. I will help you in any way possible to do this impossible task of calling people to belief. And in this, he's calling us to the kind of dependence that he modeled. You remember, Jesus often said things like, I don't do anything on my own. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And as we believe in God and believe in Jesus and ask for help in his name, we are enabled to minister like Jesus. He allows us to bring glory to God as we rely on him and seek to do only what he calls us to do. Remember, the disciples are troubled. They're troubled that Jesus is leaving, but they're also troubled by their own weakness. Think about this. If Jesus is gone, how is this whole mission of salvation going to keep going? Is it going to happen in us? I mean, one of them is going to betray him. One of them is going to deny him. What are the other ten going to do to keep it going? And what about us? What about our church? What about our own personal opportunities for ministry? Can we, can we simply survive, let alone do greater works than Jesus? Well, if we in our own strength confide, confide our striving would be losing we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, who is it? Christ Jesus, it's he. Lord Sabbath, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He must work for us. We must believe that the departure of Jesus is for our present power, power to glorify the Father as we call others to faith in the Son, all in the strength that he provides as we call out to him. So we should be bold. 
We should be bold to proclaim to others that Jesus has come to the earth to save us, that he is preparing a place that he will take all of God's true children to. We can have confidence that we can ask anything in his name and he will help us to declare the wonders of his love. If we're resting in our own strength, there is no hope. But he tells us here, we can do greater works. We can speak to others in such a way that they believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Because he will be with us. So we've looked to the future. And we've looked to the present. And now we look to the past. Because the future blessing and our present power are all rooted in the fact that Jesus left this upper room and willingly went to the cross, dying to pay the price for our sin. As we take up the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper, Jesus says to us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe. Believe in what I have done for you. If your hope of salvation and forgiveness is in Christ alone and what he has done through his, his death and his resurrection on our behalf, put your faith in him, then I would invite you to take this meal with us. We also ask that you've been baptized, not because baptism is necessary for that salvation, but because it's an evidence of taking that first step of, of obedience to Christ. And so if those things are true of you, I'd invite you to take the bread and the cup with us. If not, just let them pass. Um, we will pass the bread and then take it all together and do the same uh, with the cup. Um, Trevor, could you help me to pass the bread and the cup? Um, let me give us a, a, moment, a moment of silence to prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together, and then I will pray and we will proceed. Father, thank you for providing a way. Thank you for providing a way through the death of your son that, that he is the curtain that has been torn open so that we can enter into your presence through the forgiveness that he offers. Would you be with us now as we remember him? Would you even allow the this time of remembrance to calm our troubled hearts, to bolster our belief in who you are and what you have come to do. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.